welcome back to the Space Biff Space Cast. As always, I am your dear friend, Dan Thoreau, and today I am joined by someone who I have a great amount of appreciation for. I am joined by Cole Worley. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for chatting with me, especially after the noodle incident. <laughs> now, Cole, this is in the midst of a uh, coronavirus global pandemic. How are you and your family faring during COVID-19? We are faring fine. I think um, we're sort of homebodies to begin with. And we also like both of our neighbors. And so we've had some good over the fence chats, some message communication in windows. Uh, And I I love, we actually love our neighborhood. And the other night uh, there was music playing and I felt like I was in a a Snapchat from Italy or something. It was so lovely to walk out in my backyard and hear music playing. So we're doing well. We're hunkering down. Um, but we're, we've been reading a lot of books together and playing in the yard and keeping ourselves busy. Well, that's great. Now, I want to ask you some hard questions today, Cole. The first question I have for you is, has your position on second editions changed in the last few years? Has it changed? I mean, I think so. I think it's changed. Well, maybe, I mean, it's it's impossible to answer this without seeming like I'm dodging things, but I'm going to just seem like I'm dodging things. So I think originally oh, cool. I, I didn't, dodge. no, no, no. Well, I, I can be, I can be quite, I've, I've, there's, there's nothing to hide. I put nothing, I'll let the record state that there is no, no topic on embargo in this chat. I, um, I like old and broken things. I like things that are lo-fi and a little fuzzy. Um, At the risk of sounding a little asinine, I would always tell people that my favorite Beatles albums were like the anthologies because I just thought they sounded better, kind of like unpolished and weird. Mm -hmm. And that sort of applied to games too. Um, One of my favorite exercises to do whenever I go to BGGCon, and I think I'm on like probably my eighth year, is my friends and I would go into the library and find just the weirdest old German games. And sadly, as the cons gotten more popular and the library has gotten uh, better (laughs) as a browsing library, uh, they've, they've cleaned up a lot of the bad games. Um, But it used to be that you would stumble into, you know, like a German economic game about mining from the late eighties. That wasn't good. It might've been even a roll and move game, but there were glimmers and uh, it was just sort of fun to look at, the roots of a genre or a weird, you know, offshoot. I think this is one thing that brought me really close to like Nate Hayden's games, the cave evils, mushroom oh, eaters, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and I actually, I mean, I think many of those games are legitimately good, but they're just, they're, they're peculiar. And so my feeling about second editions was mo- mostly that they just didn't seem to need to exist. And then it was really influenced by playing, um, a few Martin Wallace games that had seen a second edition. And I I don't mean to to call him out because I do like (laughs) him and we've gotten to know each other a little bit, but there were like, I just didn't like steam. I think age of steam is brilliant. I think steam is, is uh, so flat. (laughs) And and I think that actually, if I were teaching a class on design, I would want to assign those games and to have students figure out why such a small change Um, that seemingly makes the game more intelligible actually makes it much, much worse. Um, So I, so in general, uh, my, my feeling about second editions was 
in the process of domesticating a design and trying to make like usually you're doing a second edition because you want to um build the game for more people you want to direct it to a a different audience usually a bigger audience Mm -hmm. um and in that process all the interesting bits usually get chopped off but there are lots of exceptions um for one, uh, another Wallace game, I think the criminally underrated uh, Age of Industry, which is seemingly less interesting than Brass. And I think most most of the time people think that because it doesn't have Brass's like cool uh, serpentine loan track, which mm-hmm. is so fun. But Age of Industry is actually a much subtler game. It's considerably more open and interesting. Um, and And so it was really playing that that started making me think that like, okay, there is nothing necessarily wrong with the second edition or uh, Mark Herman's Washington's war, uh, which for the people is, is uh, revolutionary of course, in all senses, but Washington's war is so sharp. It's it, um, it cuts out the parts that were not good and uh, really focuses on the operational game. And so I think, like even before I was I was even realizing it, I was starting to reverse my position about second editions, and I think what 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 governs my my sense about whether or not someone should do a second edition just has to do with the priority of the design team when they go into that second edition, because there's a lot to be gained in making a game more accessible, especially if they have a good sense of the thing that they made and why it works mm-hmm. uh, not to pick on Wallace but th- th- there's a funny r- remark from an interview he said where he he talked about how when he first made brass it didn't have cards and then he put in cards and it just worked better and he wasn't really sure why um, and and I think that like a lot of designers work very intuitively and there's nothing wrong with it I do it myself quite a bit too um, but when you go into a second edition you are you are um, you need to become very a very good reader of your own work, and you don't have to be a good reader to be a good writer. Uh, and so it, it it can be humbling. And if you really want to make that new thing better than the first thing, you have to um, be sort of like fearless about really going in, finding the parts that were good, understanding how it worked and what made it good, and then know that it's going to be a hard work developing it it through. And I think a lot of times with second editions, you see people cut the wrong things uh, and it's just a bummer. Would you use uh so, so one of my examples of a, of a second edition that drives me bananas is actually also from Martin Wallace. It's a, a study in Emerald. Sure. Ooh, you, I wonder if we're going to fight about this one. So I, it's my understanding actually that you prefer the second edition. I do. I, so I have a weird, so Martin Wallace is very, is a, he's a super important designer for me because I, um, I started getting into him right when I first had a tiny bit of disposable income and I had a willing group and they were pretty much the only games I played for many years mm-hmm. were Martin Wallace games, or they were just like the majority of what we were playing. And there was a time like, this is like 2007, 2008, when the Martin Wallace release was critical i mean he was the most thematic of any of the like mainstay european designers if you wanted a history euro that wasn't going to be uh an efficiency engine game it was probably martin wallace who was going to design it uh and so you know i had the little subscription i remember playing like tinner's trail and brass like right when they came out and we would play them a bunch and then um he came out with god i, I will get to study in emerald but he came out with god's playground 
and I was so obsessed with this game that I went out, I went to the library and got a copy of Norman Davies's book, God's Playground about Poland and read it and then became so hooked. I read a bunch of other Norman Davies books and was so pumped. I was ready for God's Playground and I just did not like it. It felt endlessly baroque. It had all of these like funny levers that didn't really matter. And the thing that really screwed the game for me was that it, it like lost, it lost the thread. There was a lot of interesting things happening, but it felt like players could never understand. It's like playing like vast when you play with newbies for the first game and no one knows what they're doing. And you can get through the entire game without like there being a central moment of attention that everyone like, I'm going to play this move and everyone gasps and they think, Oh, I understand the implications of that. <laughs> That's how God's playground like feels always. Okay. And so I, I bounced very hard off God's playground. And that was like the beginning of my like, well, I don't know if I can, if I like all the Martin Wallace games, I just like half of them. Fortunately, he's published like 50 games. So there's tons of great stuff. Um, but he, uh, so with study of Emerald, I was uh, super interested in this. I love the short story. I like the idea of actually he had mentioned before he put the Lovecraft bent on it, that it was going to be a game about late 19th century anarchists. And like Leon Sholgosh was going to be a character. And I was very excited. <laughs> um, this, is, this is my jam. And I, I was so excited for it that not only did I back it in the Kickstarter, I actually built the PNP copy. I still have it in a oh box my. around here and, and played it and liked it. And then when the final game came, I just, it, it has this weird problem where I feel like that um, it's, it's just hard to find the thread of play. It like kind of has the gods, pro the gods playground problem with me where he has a mechanism where you're not sure who's on whose team, which is great, but there's just so many other things spinning around that that central thread doesn't seem as important. So when mm -hmm. I got this, and it, it, part of the problem may be, and I always, I always check myself here because I did have a shift in gaming group that was a little less tolerant of games of that complexity. So when the, the second edition came out, I was cautiously optimistic. And then when I played it, we actually had a really good time. And I thought that it did a good job distilling the essential character of the game and being like no this is a game where you don't know who's on whose team and you're building these weird suboptimal decks so that you don't communicate too much about what your you know what your position is and i thought it cleaned it up pretty well it also mm -hmm. only took like an hour to play and mm -hmm. the original studies study in emerald can go very long oh yeah um that that's where i'm at on it i i, I think it's it's i i don't i don't I try not to be a crusader on it, though, so I won't. I won't push too hard if you profess your love for the first edition. Oh no! I, I so um, I, I love it when people argue with me. Um, it's my favorite thing, actually, second favorite. Um, my favorite thing is you, Cole. Oh, thank you. I thought you were going to say it was when people agree with you. <laughs> That's my third favorite thing. Um, you know, I, I do prefer the first edition significantly to the second. Um, one of the reasons that is, is, uh, just the, the sense of this broad Europe, um, totally kind of the, the placement of it all. Um, I find it too abstracted in the second edition in a way it pairs out the, the, what are to me the most interesting elements, which are the, there are certain geographical limitations in the first game. Um, also that just that sense of place that to travel to, 
sort of what is the maps version of the developing world from their perspective where police are easier uh, to get around. Um, now, the big one for me is actually what I wanted to talk to you about today. So as you see, Cole, I have maneuvered you into a trap. Oh, perfect. I love traps. They're my favorite thing. Oh, wow. I, we, are, we are really helping each other out tonight, aren't we? Um, so what, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about tonight is something that actually you've been talking about recently, but I wanted a little bit of clarification and maybe uh, just explore this space, uh, whereas before it seemed a little bit tangential, is argument and simulation. Mm. Now, does that sound familiar to you, Cole? I mean, maybe. These are words I've used in the past. <laughs> You know, like twice they are they are big five dollar words, aren't they? Sure. The uh, so what what I mean is that you've said in the past that your background um, recently on the Ludology podcast, for instance, you've pointed out that your uh, background is more from the war game side of things, even though perhaps you yourself didn't get your beginning there. And That's that accurate. The, uh, and that the tendency in that design world rather than necessarily uh, marketability or enjoyment or balance or fairness is uh, verisimilitude, argument, simulation. Mm-hmm. Would that be an accurate statement? That is an, I think that is a, a fair statement. Um, I have yet to design a Hex Encounter game, but most of the first games that I played and many of the games that I have continued to play are war games and engage with those subjects. So when you when you say an argument uh, is being made by the game, what do you mean by that? I mean that there. So it has a little bit to do with intent, and it has a, a little bit to do with the objective. So when a game is animated by an argument, it's trying to communicate. So I, I don't mean an argument such as um, I don't know the sky is blue or something more controversial than that. I just don't want to get into a controversial argument right now. Um, so I, I don't mean an argument, uh, you know, an argument about uh, the role of the government in private life. I mean an argument in a sense as a theory of a situation, as kind of a, so these are arguments maybe more familiar to um, folks who work in policy and they, they want to, um, they, they have a, they have a particular position about what the animating force was, uh, or, or a historian, right? What, what caused the great depression? Well, there are different sure. ways that you can try to answer that question. You can, uh, you, you can sort of play detective and sleuth. You can direct all, find all the paperwork and see, uh, if, if that, if, if what you think caused an event was actually the cause, uh, you can also build models and just see if, you know, Ceteris Paribus, if all things being equal, uh, that you can recreate those those same tensions, right? And one of the things I love about war games and about simulations, so I think simulations sometimes get a bad rap because people think of them as um, very uh, sort of uh, milquetoast. Like there's, they're just not doing anything. They're not communicating anything. They're boring. There are no objectives. Yeah. You're playing Microsoft Flight Simulator. Well, Microsoft Flight Simulator presents an argument about how flight works. Uh, It might be uncontroversial. And so it's not boring because it's a a simulation. It might be boring because it's uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. But every every simulation is presenting a theory of an event. Um, And then the simulation is testing uh, or it's providing a, a means at which 
players can test the correctness of that theory. So for instance, um, a subject that I find terrifying as a designer that I will never design in uh, would be something like uh, the US Civil War. So, uh, and I, I can't design in it because um, there are, uh, there, the battle lines have been drawn. There are theories about why certain battles or certain theaters went certain directions. Mm-hmm. And there are hundreds of war games that pit these various theories against each other. And there's mm-hmm. a funny exercise that happens, and I, I see it all the time in, in players of war games, um, where when they play it, they're checking it against their sense of the event in their own mind. So if you're playing a game about the French Revolution, but it doesn't, nothing that happened in the French Revolution happens in your game. You know, if no one builds a guillotine, then there's something wrong with that theory of the French Revolution or that simulation. And so this is what I mean about an argument. It's, it, it, it's less a single position than like a systemic position that can fold. Sure. And it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. So one of the things that I've noticed a lot of war gamers uh, debating, uh, especially war game designers, is what I would phrase as a question of fidelity. Um, for example, if we were to create you and I a game about the Battle of the Bulge, um, should we make it a foregone conclusion that the Wehrmacht is going to lose, mm-hmm. or should we make it possible for uh, both players to have an actual chance, not necessarily an even chance, but a chance to emerge victorious? How do you feel about that fidelity question? Well, it depends. Fidelity... Um... So it's, it's a matter of perspective a little bit. I think so. I always, I, I kind of frame it in different ways. So if you think about um, uh, the failure of Germany um, mm-hmm. in, in a game about the Battle of the Bulge, um, the, the question that players have to, or not, or not players, the questions that a, a designer would need to sort of sort through is what... So, okay, let me think about the better way to talk about this maybe is talk about objectives, right? So you need an objective that's going to animate players to like, objectives are kind of like the fuel, the like basic, the basic energy of any model. You have to give players an objective. You need to give them an objective that they could execute well on. Now that execution could mean um, like a minor defeat as opposed to a total defeat. To defeat, and you could just call the minor to defeat a victory or something. Um, but when when you're doing this kind of work, you have to think about perspective, and I think when when it and, and it, you have to you have to think about um, what you're optimizing for. So if your goal is verisimilitude, um, that's not to, it's not uh, monolithic. There's a lot of different things that could be uh, measured closely, right? And so you could be thinking about the caliber of weapons and like what people are doing with the spent shells. Uh, and you could spend all your whole time thinking about that and it could be very close to the, the nitty gritty reality on the ground, but it could totally miss the point that you're trying to communicate. And so when, when even when we're doing like a, a simulation can simulate a lot of different things, uh, and a very true simulation can have a really wide range of possibilities. So one one game that always comes to mind is uh, McLaughlin's The Napoleonic Wars, which we may have talked about before. I'm not sure. It's uh, basically like the last game that Avalon Hill made, but it wandered from Avalon Hill and was published by GMT. But it was like essentially the the old guard Avalon Hill, as I understand it, 
this was the last project they were really working on together. And then Avalon Oak collapses, it floats around, it eventually finds a home at GMT. Story's more complicated than that, but we don't need to go into it. Uh, it's a card-driven war game, like Here I Stand. But it is so unlike Here I Stand, because Here I Stand, which is magisterial in lots of ways, um, is very stable. There are things that need to happen. And in fact, one of the things I always think about when, when I think about uh, Ed Beach's design for the game is how uh, the first turn works. There are like these particular events that have to fire. And it's a little right. bit like a cut scene in a video game where you have like a few choices in the first <laughs> 20 minutes, but really it's kind of on rails. Um, right. And then it, you know, the, it really is the first hour. The first hour produces the quasi random starting scenario that the game will actually take place on top of um sure. and it is so unlike the napoleonic wars which is completely chaotic and i think the napoleonic wars is a much better simulation of the early 19th century than here i stand is of the reformation because i think the napoleonic wars um it fixes the players in the ruling class of each of the the nation really the head just the head of state in each of the nations and it captures the absolute like terror and wild possibility of the time and i i remember uh playing a game once recently where uh at one point some russians like landed in spain to support the spanish against napoleon and they were like this is nonsensical and someone got very salty about the whole thing and I was like, well, you know, it is strange, like strange things happened in this period. Like Napoleon invaded Egypt. Yeah. Like that's, that's bananas. Most, most Napoleonic war games on the grand scale like to start after that happened because you just don't want to extend the map out that far. Um, like the, the, the earlier romantic period is a period of wild possibility. And I think the Napoleonic Wars does a really good job of modeling that chaos and uncertainty. And it also uh, makes it sometimes a little comic and widely ahistorical, but it's it's optimized for a feeling, not for an event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I have often wondered about with games um, like Twilight Struggle, or we played Here I Stand. We had a big game day over the summer where we all got together and played it. Um, just the, that high level play is about memorizing the cards, um, which of course is not something you, as, as a leader, in a time period, um, how do you react to an event when you don't know it's going to come? Mm -hmm. um, which is a very different feel from knowing which cards are optimally played to the space race track. Um, you know, there's just that level of certainty undermines the simulation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason why I, I, I quite love Twilight Struggle, but I feel like the better I get at it, and I'm still not very good the less like the cold war it feels. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel like can be argued um, from a, from a game? Oh, all sorts of things. I mean, I think uh, there is uh, there are very few things that can't be argued. I think um, what I think that uh, I guess I'll say a little about what things that I think can be better argued with games and things that I think that can be worse argued. So um, games fail as an argumentative means uh, if the argument demands specificity. Uh, I think that uh, like Phil's work on BIOS Genesis is 
pretty admirable. It's a very strange project. Like just mm-hmm. outside of even thinking about it as a game, it's just a weird thing to even think that the game form could be well appointed to dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I think that it it is so abstract that it's difficult to understand what is being said because like the if you if it were to become more specific, it would be unplayable. So I think mm-hmm. when it comes to like understanding to making the kind of like specific arguments uh, that I used to try to make when I was in graduate school, those are better for academic journals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they are um, I think that games are often quite bad at certain kinds of narratives that demand um, characters act in certain ways. You know, mm-hmm. some, this is one reason why um, whodunit board games like Clue or something never feel like Knives Out. Sure. They, they just kind of, I'm actually kind of interested in that problem as a potential design prompt in the future, but they're, they're, they have a problem with like, um, with delivering really uh, carefully uh, choreographed, you know, blocking or narrative beats without yeah. sounding like, well, you're, we're reading paragraphs, we're just reading a short story, but then everyone's when we roll dice. Um, but the kinds of arguments I think games are really good at are arguments about feeling and arguments about um, understanding. So both the uh, uh, feelings that players, different player positions might, um, let me rephrase this. I think games are good at understanding relationships of players to a system and players to each other. Mm-hmm. And so they're good at sympathy. They're good at um emotions like fear and understanding and even kind of compassion and um, allowing the players to sort of push on each other and be a rearrange. They kind of can reconfigure the social order of people sitting around a table. Uh, And they're immensely powerful in that regard. And you can really walk away. I I think um, when players divide themselves to play a game, you know, they might be drinking a beer and eating pizza and having a nice afternoon, hanging out with their friends. But then they have the second self in the game. Uh, they might be doing something quite horrible. And that that division uh, the, 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 that is enabled by this kind of magic circle of play um, allows for the players to experience really interesting sympathetic positions. So... Um, I mean, I know you just had the designer of, of, of Meltwater on. It's a great example of a, of, a, of a game. I haven't listened to the interview yet, but it's a great, just a, a fabulous instance of a game that I have played as an abstract with my wife, almost. Mm-hmm. And then only at the end of it been like, oh, what a, what a horrible thing we've done. And, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, even like you have these moments, like these flashes of realization where you kind of realize the consequences of some of your actions um, as you all get kind of tangled up together. So I think, I think they're quite good at that. I mean, they're a little bit, um, they're a little bit like plays almost, but they're plays where you're creating the conditions where the players are going to write their own script in some cases. And that can be an immensely like powerful form. Uh, but it does like lack in specificity, uh, which is one reason why I try to avoid, um, I, I try to avoid being like, I try to keep my own argumentation like in a kind of middle zone 
where I'm a little general, where I can allow the game to get a little ahistorical and goofy. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know that if I try to tell a more concrete story, it would have just been better as an essay. Yeah. So which of the BIOS games did you offer as an example? Oh, I mean, I think so Genesis it, to me is um, trying to do something too specific. And then mm -hmm. in order to make this playable, it's too abstract and doesn't really work. Yeah. And I actually think that like Origins is quite remarkable in its ability to um, tell really amazing, wide, broad stories that have flashes of specificity without getting mired in the details, but also like the system is actually engaging with the subject. It's not just like rolling a bunch of dice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what would you so what, what argument is something like BIOS origins making to you? Well, I think it makes a sweet, I mean, I think it makes a sweet of them. And I just, I, I want to underline that because I think one of the things I love about, about the kind of game form is that these games are able to communicate multivalently. There's a lot of different arguments happening in a game like BIOS origins. Um, so one of the things I love about BIOS, I'll just give an example of one small argument that I think the game makes really well is um, a lot of, a lot of Civ games uh, make this argument about the place of religion and culture, that mm -hmm. you um, you innovate Christianity or something, and then on the same track at like, oh, well, if you get enough points in Christianity, you'll move up to like, I don't know, deism or something, as if mm -hmm. religions like grow in, in the, the single way or, or as if despotism is a less refined version of democracy. One of the things that BIOS Origins, I think, does really wonderfully, especially when it comes to the subject of religion, is show, you know, what can religion do? Well, it can give you access to certain kinds of cultural improvements. This is like the, 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 the mystical like branch. Um, and if you've evolved higher reasoning, you know, it doesn't like you could you're bidding in BIOS Origins, you're bidding with these elders. And it doesn't matter if they're sitting on the like mystics box or if they're sitting on an innovation, everyone's participating in the auction. And it shows like how these different epistemological systems can still communicate. And like one isn't more advanced than the other one. They both can figure out how to make like a bone house or whatever one of those weird <laughs> early, early right, cards right, is. Right. Um, and it, 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 bone house, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm almost positive that's, that is one of them. Um, and every time I see I'm trying card, to remember the bone house. Um, <laughs> you know, every time I see that card, I'm like, that can't be a thing. Um, but I, it, it, and it does it by me by mechanism because there are other things that the mystics can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, I, I think it, it's sort of lovely how it it, it creates. A, uh, you know, you can kind of see the pressure that a more religious society might have. Uh, versus a, a site that's not quite religious. Or if you've played um, the first edition of Origins, uh, one of the things I loved about the first edition of Origins was how it dealt with state stability. And this is a little bit in BIOS Origins, but not it's not as, as dominant of a theme. But in uh, the original Origins, you were always trying to balance your population growth with your innovation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil's argument, um, which is a little silly, but not that silly, uh, was simply that like when people have less kids, they're more innovative because they have more time to spend with their kids. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but, but you also like need to grow and expand and survive. And so you're, you're having to balance these two things. And in a, the original origins, 
um, one of the shortcuts you could take to stabilize your society is you could invest in civic improvements that would make life better, like a school system or, mm-hmm. or, or a church or any kind of state apparatus. Uh, and they, they did very good things to make your society stable. But Phil didn't view stability as necessarily a good thing. So stable societies, uh, they wouldn't implode, but they also couldn't innovate quite as well. And Mm -hmm. there were certain kinds of innovations that they had less access to, the really big leaps. So Mm -hmm. you would, you know, really skillful play in in, uh, Origins, the first edition, was always keeping your society kind of on the edge of collapse and going through this roller coaster because you knew that if you cycled into a dark age, it could reconfigure society. And it was this wonderful way of talking about disruptions, both cultural and market and all different ways of thinking about the word. Uh, as opportunities for like radical change, as mm-hmm. opposed to like a, a, a sense of progress that was always about like building a taller tower. Uh, and it, it's this funny way that like I know that I know that Phil hates Clune and um, the origins of scientific revolutions and all that, uh, but he was doing that argument <laughs> in his game, whether right. whether he knew it or not. Yeah, that's one of the games that I appreciated just from a historical perspective. Um, only to be pretty surprised by some of the footnotes, which I felt like were arguing the opposite of the things the game was actually arguing. Um, but that tends to be the case with a lot of those games. I think that that is the hallmark. The hallmark. I mean, like I, I just I always think about the Pax Renaissance footnotes, which Pax Renaissance is the most cosmopolitan game about the Renaissance in existence. In the footnotes, you would never know that from reading the footnotes. Yeah. Yeah, Pax, uh, Pax Renaissance is a game that I have recommended to some of my historian friends just from the perspective of um, this is the game where the Renaissance enters into its full breadth, mm-hmm. um, but but just read the rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, Cole, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is because um, I, so I've long uh, argued that your games make arguments. Um, in fact, recently... Uh, Probably a couple of months ago, I was playing Pax Premier First Edition again, and I was thinking about the ways that the first and second edition argue very different things, uh, based on some, from my perspective, small mechanistic alterations. And I don't want to say that in a way that makes you feel diminished. No, no, I'm no, sure no, to no. you, they don't feel small. Um, since yeah, you put so much but, attention and energy. Yeah, but that in no way, in no way diminished. It's just part of how it works. <laughs> That at the end of the project, you become fixated on tiny things that seem quite big. Yeah. So what are you generally arguing with your games? So I think uh, many of them are variations on a theme. I, th- I don't know. There, there are a couple different... Um, I think I have a few argue like postures, maybe, is the right way to think about it. Because I do feel like I look at the games they did about the British Empire, and I feel like so many of them is just trying to take games about empire and move them into a Said, Edward Said or post Said moment, which is to say to like bring them into the nineties <laughs> of, you know, it, it's like not, I, I just, I want um, an engagement with empire's cultural footprint. This is like a case like traffic or John company that understands the degree to which the domestic and the imperial frameworks are were tangled up in each other. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also how a series of even well-meaning choices, could, like how, how Empire is not, if you, if you imagine Empire as a mustachioed Brit with like a pith helmet uh, gallivanting into Africa, you're going to have a hard time dealing with the historic record. Because what's happening is you're buying into in the image that Empire projected of itself but not how it was actually, you know, participated in. And yeah. I think about, I mean, I really think about the British Empire now as, I mean, it, it's just, there, there were many actors pushing in many directions and it was a very evil broth. Uh, but it was not, it was not something that was done even consciously. And realizing that the mind of empire, if that is even a thing that can be thought about, uh, is split a thousand ways. I think that that alone to me seems like a fertile territory for argumentation. And so what I wanted to do with these games about the British Empire was approach the subject, like really just a very common board game subject. Even games that don't seem to be about empire are about empire. And approach it from a few different angles and think about the ways that these pressures look different depending on your vantage point. Um, and so the the arguments the arguments change, but I think that there is in general a kind of um, I mean I really I do kind of think about it as a Saidian framework, even though that's not totally true. Um, and it's not totally true just because you know I'm not I don't want to diminish his, his contribution, but I'm not just looking at uh, English lit. You know, it's a, it's a bit mm-hmm. of a, it's, it's more historical than that. Um, maybe like new empire studies or something. Um, but I, I, I think that a lot of, a lot of my arguments kind of come from trying to think about um, the kinds of, you know, lowercase a arguments that games about the British empire might make realize that realizing that those arguments, those things about simulation. So I think about a game like Pax Britannica by Greg Kozikson. I can never say his last name. Um, Pax Britannica, I mean, Greg is an amazing designer. I don't, I don't know him personally. Um, I just am saying his first name because I have a hard time pronouncing his last name. Um, he's an amazing designer and Pax Britannica is an, yeah, Consikian. That's right. And it's an incredible design. It's sprawling, interesting. It has a million hooks into it. And it's kind of bit of a, it's a bit of a bummer though, because it has, of sort of like of an old school, like Kipling's recessional, uh, view of empire about like, Oh, well the British empire, like it, you know, it was bad, but like it also, you know, rule of law did, did some good too. And it's just bananas. Like no historian would dare make an argument. That's silly. Um, unless they're like Niall Ferguson or something. And so it was, um, <laughs> it, it was, it, it felt like I, w- I would look at a game like this and say like, okay, there's gotta be a way of approaching this subject that is just a little bit more in line with like the mainstream of historical thought right now. Um, and so that, I mean, th- th- that's a very loose and vague answer to your, to your good question about the sorts of arguments they make. But I, I, I want, I'm, I'm keeping it vague because I, I feel like each of the games makes slightly different arguments, but they have, I have um, a, a similar ethical framework that is informing all of the historical games. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll say too, actually, one more thing about that. So I'm, I'm working on very early stages. I mean, it's been early stages for a year and a half, but who knows? It'll take a long time to do. I'm working on this game about American Reconstruction right now, um, and it, 
the animating argument behind it is it's it's like probably going to be the most pedagogical project I've done just because I feel like it's not a period that is well understood by by people who play games. So I have mm-hmm. to do like a lot of teaching in this design. But the actual a lot of the arguments are just coming from Eric Foner who like wrote the best book about reconstruction, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. So like there's nothing current (laughs) like i'm not i'm not going to the latest theorist and then applying that to the game or anything i'm just trying to bring people a little bit up to speed sure so in terms of uh so do you feel like you were making different arguments in pax Pamir one and two uh yes i have i um you teased that you were going to write an essay about this and i don't know if you did (laughs) no i didn't I have not gotten around to it um, because there was a global pandemic. Yeah, I heard. Um, <laughs> but I, I <laughs> descended on us. Um, no, I, because I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this comment. I think I am a little bit. But I, I uh, when you first when I saw that you made that comment, I tried thinking about um, the ways in which their arguments are different, mm-hmm. and I kind of have I have trouble doing it because I do see them as like similar enough in what they're trying to do. I think part of what, what's happening is for me, when I look, I am now so corrupted that I have a hard time understanding Pamir one outside of Pamir two. And so the arguments that two is making are including all of the ones that might've been made in one Mm -hmm. that might've made it different because I always wanted one to be two or something like that. Yeah, sure. So I'll run it by you if you're interested. No, please do. So um, the mechanical differences, I'll, I'll just try to sum them up. So in case somebody's listening and they don't know, both packs, Premier Games, which I th- um, think are both wonderful titles, um, I would agree that these are uh, titles that exist in a post-Edward Said world, mm-hmm. which just, just tickles me as someone who, you know, I, I am a historian, I do work in history, which means I write a lot of uh, history in a world where it is assumed that people know who Edward Said is and what he's contributed. To me, the big mechanical difference is the way that the game concludes. And from that difference, there's a, there's a backfilling effect that transforms a lot of the other aspects of the game. So what I mean by that is that um, in the first game, Pax Pamir 1, um, you playing as an Afghan uh, chieftain, you want to join one of three empires and ride their coattails because when they win the war between the three empires, um, you want to be the one that they like best so that you can be put in charge. Is that accurate? Yes. And uh, so the three empires, of course, are the British, who are seeking to use Afghanistan as a a bit of a buffer state um, for India. Um, The Russian empire which is expanding quite rapidly and then um sort of a uh inchoate uh durrani you know what what whatever they would be now that the old durrani are gone but trying to make an afghan empire for themselves is that also correct yes yes that's a good encapsulation of it you probably know all the terms better than i do um it's fine my you're close history I'm close. You're okay. close. You're, you're 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 plenty close. So instead of Durrani, should, should I say Baraksai? No. You, uh, well, for for the insurgent state, maybe, but it wasn't. It's not clear. I mean, it could have been. It could have been more of an Afghan Persian 
like insurgent state. They're different. The the, Af- the insurgent Af- Afghan state, the Baraksai is one, but it, it could have tilted lots of different ways. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the Transcaspian Khanates could have come in and, and just kind of expended their little feudal, you know, neo-feudal empires over the whole region. There are different ways it could have, it could have spun. But I understand okay. where you're going with this. Continue. Okay, so so the way that they end is significantly uh, different. So in Pax Pamir One, you you do pretty much what you do in, of course, Pax Perferiana, where there is a particular climate. Um, in this case, it could be political, it could be economic, it could be military, and that and that sort of represents uh, the overall conflict that's going on in Afghanistan. You know, are you fighting a war of spies and whispers, or are you marching armies at each other, or are you trying to bully the markets? Well, when a particular card appears in the market, you try to buy that card and be dominant in that card while still having presence in the other things as the foundation for the new empire. Um, so Pax Pamir 1 tends to end very suddenly. Um, you can set it up and it could end in half an hour or two hours. Um, Pax Pamir 2, on the other hand, does something a little bit different where when you win one of those cards, uh, one of those what do you call them in the... So were they topple cards in they're, the first game? They're topples in the first game. And the second game calls them what? Dominance checks. So what I think they do in terms of the actual statement that the game is making is that in the first game, the framing is placed entirely um, on the fate of the empires. Mm-hmm. And the reason that is is, is because you as a chieftain... Um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a well-meaning design and I think that I wouldn't actually have this complaint unless you had made the second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the framing is on the empires because you as a chieftain are unlikely to have actually much agency in determining your allegiance. Um, you can in theory, but in practice, it's, it's kind of a bummer mm-hmm. to change from one side to another. You lose a lot of progress. So it's really about you as a chieftain being a collaborator in a war. Yes. Which I, which I think is unfortunately reductive. Um, the second one, though, I think is about a lot more than that. I think it assigns a lot more agency to its actors in the sense that, yes, you will collaborate in the process of a war, but it's more about the survival of a homeland uh, despite multiple encroachments. Uh, and I think that it places the framing much more firmly on the actual chieftains as opposed to the empires coming in because in the span of one game, you'll see uh, probably at least three wars. So it's interesting. So I, I think that you're you're spot on, and that I'm glad that that is. I'm glad that 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 is a discernible shift because one of the things that most upset me about the reception of the first edition, and more particularly watching people play it. And at BGGCon, I would always like sneak around. And if I saw someone playing it, I'd watch their game. And then I'd just kind of like move on to the next table. So it was just kind of mm-hmm. curious. And um, they very much understood it as your attempting to be, you know, the next Karzai. That the games are in, they always end in a moment of imperial triumph. Yeah. And uh, that is just not true. And that was not the, the picture that I had, I had wanted to really tell with the game. And I, when I was working on Kyver knives, I worked on the honeymoon rules and they were, there were two animating impulses behind them. One of them was to spread the in game 
uh, over several rounds, as opposed to it coming down to this like finely calibrated single round tactical puzzle. That was impetus one. But the second impetus was that it, uh, the game is supposed to have a generational scope or an almost generational scope. It's like a generation and a half of, mm-hmm. of narrative scope. And I, it was important that the empires be a smaller part of the picture. And, and, and so this was like, I had originally planned on not even calling them empires. And it took, I mean, even just the changing of the word from empire to coalition helps get you there. And then also the fact yeah. that, that you were going to watch players be in a coalition decide to leave, <clears throat> but their, their identity, just because of the way that the card play works, um, is a lot more uh, bound up in who the player is rather than the coalition they're, they're, they're changing to. And there was another way that, we, that I, I, um, I, tr- I reordered things that I think is contributing to this, to this uh, sense that you've had, which is um, the I re-juggled the action. So this is like, I don't think I've really seen many folks comment on this, but um, the actions, like, I get a lot of questions that would t- ask me if you could play the first edition with the second edition. And the answer is no, for lots of reasons. But the biggest reason is actually that the deck is almost totally different. Uh, and mm-hmm. what I did was most of the activities, like marching and fighting, I put those on the intelligence cards. Right? I put like the fighting. It's all on the intelligence cards and it's on the political cards. Whereas the marching is put on economic cards. So what it does, <coughs> it creates this funny character where players will identify more with their tableaus because the characters that have faces and names and backgrounds are also the characters who are able to do things. So it, it just it, it more firmly roots them in the cards that they decide to play. Um, and it's a lot more common in the second edition to keep your tableau around for most of the game. It's, I mean, the very first card that you play in many games of Premier 2, you may have that card the entire game, and that almost never happens in the first one. Mm-hmm. The first one's a lot more like Porfiriana in that you were just, you got a cycle. So, so when you're looking at a design, when you're, when you're trying to think your way through a system, when you're trying to make an argument, what is the inception of all of that for you? Is it the argument? Is it um, the systematic element of the design what is it for you it's a sense that um i used to tell people that there were kind of like two inquiries there was this mechanical inquiry and a thematic inquiry and every once in a while they would line up and at that intersection there'd be a game so i had you know thinking about c excuse me thinking about saeed thinking about empire uh thinking about afghanistan that's all thematic inquiry um and then thinking about what it would mean to have a portfolio, uh, a, an engine builder, tableau builder, that was also a portfolio game. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe maybe these ideas are connected. Yeah. And I think that's still true to a degree. But increasingly, I have found my process is more driven by um, just thinking about the thematic side. And mm-hmm. it's not it's never like a concrete argument. It's like a curiosity about something. I used to, when I was an undergrad, especially, I would always pick paper topics that I knew nothing about 
because I knew that if I picked a paper topic about a novel I loved, I would just screw it up and I would get, <laughs> I would get bored with it and I would write uh, something that was completely nonsensical. Uh, but if I could find a topic that I just didn't really understand, then I could, I would be a, a better writer and a better reader. And I do, it's similar with games. I'll kind of have a thought of like, oh, you know, I mean, like with, with Oath, just thinking about how does the Civ genre operate in the middle distance on like the scale of Boldenbrooks or something. Um, <clears throat> have you read that Thomas uh, Mann novel? No. Oh, it's, it's great. It's just, it's so rambly and lovely. And, you know, uh, but like thinking about like, what is, what does the Civ game look like if cast is a family drama? Um, thinking about um, some of the subjects of the PAX genre as, and, and trying to do the work of, um, you know, most games when they, they, they end right as the systems are spinning into collapse anyway, you know, anybody who has accidentally played one turn too long in age of steam knows that the numbers like lose all their tension and they fall apart. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm just sort of like thinking about these things generally. I don't have a specific argument. I'm just thinking like, Oh, these are, this is a curious thing that I've never seen in a game or a subject that I haven't seen uh, really well tackled that I don't really know how I'd handle it. And then I just kind mm -hmm. of start sketching ways of handling it. Um, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, like literally just like drawing, like, what does the board even look like? What would you want to, they're just all of these choices when, when you think about how a game presents itself. I mean, that, that question about argument, you can look at a, a board and get a sense of what the argument is. Like if you look at a Lasarda game and uh, you look at like Kanban or something, uh, it, it has an, it has a story it's trying to tell <clears throat> and it's a story about process and bureaucracy mm -hmm. and it, it, it's communicated even at the level of a single image, just the board. And so even at this early stage, I'll find myself like just loosely sketching, like, what does this even look like? You know, what, what's the big visual picture? And in this part of the process for me is very vague. I, I almost never have, I mean, like actually I'll use the example of the reconstruction game. I don't know what my argument is yet. I have ideas. I have ideas about why reconstruction failed and about the kinds of things that I might want to say about federal power and about the process of nation building, but I'm not really sure yet. And mm -hmm. I, I'm still kind of solving it. I don't know if those things are going to be solved by the time I'm done with the game. So actually that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you. And it sounds like in a way you've answered it already is, um, you know, when, when I'm writing a paper or working through a, a historical question, I find that the time when I approach a model um, or a thesis or solving a conundrum is it's when I'm actually in the process of writing Mm -hmm. um, I cannot read documents and decide what I think about them and, or even play a game and decide really entirely what I think about it. Obviously I have impressions. I have a good time or a bad time, but it isn't until I sit down and start formalizing it. I write an introduction and then start that process. Uh, that's really when, uh, the argument comes out for me. Mm -hmm. So with something like Pax Pamir one and two. So did you always intend for the Pax Pamir two argument, or is that something that uh, came up through your dissatisfaction with uh, the first one or where did that come from? I think it, I mean, it, it, I had intended it, but I don't think I 
I was still learning the, about the connection between the things that I wanted to say and the mechanisms that would make it possible. And when in doubt, I would defer to <clears throat> I would defer to something that I knew wouldn't break the game, and I would defer to so, like the something the way Perfiriana worked, for instance. Um, that so I, I do actually think that in the case of of Pamir, I had a pretty firm sense of the kinds of things I wanted to to say with the game. But that isn't that isn't always the true. And I find a lot a lot more of the time I I work loosely, and then mm-hmm. slowly come up with the argument about the thing. And sometimes there's considerable drift in that process. I mean, I, I don't know. I think this is maybe common, and especially in academic writing. Um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person this is true for. But when I was working on my dissertation. Um, the conclusion uh, was very easily written, and it's probably the best part of the whole thing. Uh, it, it just—it was a moment where I was—I felt like I was able to move quickly and with clarity over things that in the intro were like a little vexed and muddled because I just—I yeah. didn't know exactly what things were going to be really important. Um, and with, with with a game design, um, when I'm doing that kind of like pre-writing, pre-design part. There is the, there is a question about what is the thing that's going to matter. So in in the case of Premier, I mean I think that happened in Premier too. Um, I, rather that happened in Premier as well. I when I was working on Premier, I, I recently had a live stream where I, I went through a bunch of um, early drafts for the game and just kind of talked through how they worked. Uh, some of them were very early, and I remember one of the drafts was for a negotiation game where like the, you essentially the players control different mountain passes and um, it, it was all wrong. It just completely misunderstood what the central drama was because it, the, the players were like too local. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I didn't re- really realize that because I, I wanted, you know, the, the design was being too determined by things like geography and tradition and so sometimes I wonder if, you know, there's all these things happening when we're writing. And I think one of them is that we develop a sense of proportion around the message. And then mm-hmm. once you develop that sense of proportion and the kind of the weight of things, you can understand like, oh, you know, it's like dancing or something, right? Like the body moves in a certain, has a certain way of moving. And w- once you get a sense of its center of gravity, you can execute something that's a little more complicated. Um, whereas when, when you're first working, it's like, you're just drawing, you know, footprints on, on the floor and thinking that it, because the design is beautiful, that it's, it's going to be, uh, beautiful when performed. So, so what is your argument with something like oath? Is it purely about civilization games? So I, I, I recall you had, uh, talked about a sort of historiographical deduction game about the fall of Rome, mm-hmm. uh, which got me a little bit excited. Oh, so um, that was right before Patrick hired me. When I, when I didn't realize I was going to spend a couple of years of my life making a game about animals in the woods. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, Oath, Oath has, I mean, it has a lot of arguments, but it, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll be, I can be specific. I think that it, some of it comes, um, some of the, so, okay, let me put it this way. Um, root, to me is about posture and pressure and the different asymmetries in root are about thinking about geopolitical positions and the postures that players find themselves in 
and how they can exact uh, pressure on each other. And with Oath, I, I think the one thing I like, and this is just a little aside, one thing I love about working at Leader and working in fantasy games is that I can be a little more, um, I can be bigger in my argumentation. I don't have to be so like linked to a specific group of decades. Um, mm-hmm. So like root, I can I can I can put um, an argument about the Roman Republic next to an argument about Byzantinian themes, um, and you know and and all the rest, and it, sure. it doesn't really matter uh, if it's a historical because they're they're being leveled by the by the history of the world that the whole team is building, um, and so for oath. I knew that if I wanted, so I knew I wanted to make an argument about history and the, the mechanism for this argument is the metagame because players already talk about history. There's nothing, I mean, that I think is one of the, one important thing about uh, the intervention that I hope to make with Oath is that uh, players already talk about history a lot. But they talk mm-hmm. about it without realizing it because they talk about the metagame. And when players argue about which strategies are strong and weak and, oh, do you remember when this was the thing that everyone was doing? They're having conversations about history and models and all the stuff that I'm really interested in. Uh, it's just being applied to, I don't know, Hearthstone. Um, there's nothing wrong with Hearthstone. It's a great game. But I, but I, and, but a lot of times um, the, the thing that where, where games kind of fail is that uh, the change that happens in the game is uh, dictated by a design team. It's not driven by the players and it changes so slowly. So I have recently started uh, playing Starcraft with my, with my friends and siblings again. And I used to play a lot of Starcraft too. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is so different now. I mean, I played quite a bit through the second expansion, but then didn't really play the third expansion. And the game is just much faster and much harder than I remember it. And the meta has changed a lot in ways that I don't know if are good or bad, but it's just changed. Um, That change has happened over several years. Uh, But it's interesting, and it makes me reflect on, you know, things like how a culture changes around around a game or around anything. And so with Oath, some of the animating um, thoughts behind it were thinking about making that meta, that kind of shift um, a little faster, not super fast, but just a little faster so that players could kind of think through and, you know, the, the, the subject of change and see themselves as actors in that change in the space of a few weeks, as opposed to many months and years or their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, you know, I guess, in and in in I, I haven't really made this connection um, explicit before, uh, but like the kinds of games I think that do this well are something like Millennium Blades. Oh, um, sure. Which I think about Millennium Blades is, I mean, Millennium Blades is fabulous for a million reasons, but one of my favorite things about it is its scale and how like the scale of a game of Millennium Blades is like, schools out for the summer this game will take the play like this game you know transpires over three months when you were in seventh grade and it just nails it it like it absolutely understands like that this is the scale that it operates in 
and it has such command of that of that scale of like yeah. three months in middle school, which is a very spongy type of time. It's not like Agricola, which is like, you know, Agricola to me, uh, the time of Agricola is, is, it's almost incidental. It's because it's so weird. Like mm-hmm. you get really powerful, but then you run out of time and the game's over. And like, I don't know, maybe that's some canard about how the years fly by or something. But to me, mostly it just feels like any, I mean, and I, and I look, I straight love Agricola. Um, my wife and I have probably played a hundred, 150 games of it. But I think when it comes to its storytelling, it's very, very silly because it is, um, it has almost nothing to do with like the feeling of family growth. It has everything mm-hmm. to do with like you, you built a little efficiency engine and ran it hot and then maybe you hit the mark or maybe you missed it. Whereas yeah. when I think about the way time works in Millennium Blades, it so beautifully captures like what essentially is like 10 weeks of a kid's yeah. life. And so anyway, to, to connect it back to Oath, I think thinking about time in games and how players think about the time they spend in games and around games, um, though a lot of my, my thoughts about Oath were connected to that area of thought i mean it's a it sounds just pretentious and awful to say this but i a lot of my thinking about oath was like how do i want people to talk about this game when they're not playing it Mm -hmm. right which is like well that's very presumptive you assume people are going to talk about your stuff when they're not playing it but it it was it was more like i want it sometimes when i'm working on a game i will think is this game worth writing a strategy article about Mm -hmm. is it is it worth any kind of discourse and it's not it's not a way of, of I, I'm never trying to sound self-important when I ask myself those questions. I'm trying to make sure that the thing I'm working on has any reason to exist. <laughs> because it's not good enough. If I, if I find it cute, that's like not a good enough reason <laughs> for something yeah. to happen. So what is it that you're hoping players will talk about with Oath when they're not playing? <clears throat> I'm I'm hoping that Players um, tell stories about the games they play. And, I mean, I have stories about games of risk that I remember very, very clearly. And I want the game itself to support that storytelling, to provide a scaffolding to let those stories sit inside the game and outside of the game, like half in and half out. Um. And that's, it's been, it's proved to be pretty hard to do. And who knows? And also uh, one of the unfortunate things about development is as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into a game, you start losing your ability to understand the thing that you're making. So it's hard to know, like, like I will not get to probably experience the thing that I want to exist with it, but, but I, I want that kind of half in half out. I want the, the kinds of stories that the game generates to be um, memorable and interesting enough that they're worth talking about um, mm-hmm. and that they have like various hooks into memory where things will, you know, there are cycles, things will happen again. You'll see the actors arranged in a slightly different way or remind you of this other game, but then still be an interesting enough platform for you to tell like a different variation on that same story. Um through, through the act of playing. Um, and a, a lot of this was reacting to um, listening to people talk about their games of root as if they were generational, even though 
they're, they aren't, but they would just sort of like, Oh, you remember when this particular thing happened and it led to that? Oh, and then the next game I did this to you. And it was like, well, yeah, those are, you're replaying the same moment over and over again, but <clears throat> it, you know, I'm trying to find a way of like providing anchors. I mean, memory, memory is a funny thing, right? Because you need some kind of anchor to access that memory, right? It's a smell sure. or a song or something. And what I'm wanting to do with Oath is provide enough anchors that those previous games can kind of like reverberate. Uh, and I don't know if it's going to be possible. I think so, though. I have, I have good indications. Uh, people seem to like it <laughs> uh, who play it. Although I, I have to, like, whenever I get starry-eyed about Oath, I need to extra remind folks that, like, it has just gotten, like, even more wild. And every time I play it, I, I like I, I get I get the same feeling that I've gotten with other titles where I'm like, this is just not for everybody. Some people are going to open this up and be like, ooh, this is way too saucy for me, uh, <laughs> which is okay. So it seems to me, so I, I, I so obviously I've played Oath, um, and uh, I I feel very positively about it. It certainly had some anchors for me, where it was the narrative that spun out from it generationally felt very effortless to me. Um, now I've noticed that you have a tendency Cole, to make merciless changes to your prototypes. Yes. So what can you tell us about your willingness to make those dramatic slashing changes to a prototype? Um, you know, I, at this point when you've collected people's Kickstarter money, oh, yeah, that, totally, you know, yeah. you're still in the, yeah, I've, I've no, no shame about this. Um, I, okay. When I'm working on a game, so all that stuff I was prattling on about half an hour ago about feeling, um, this is, to me, this feels like a very natural way of approaching design because it reminds me of how my friends who are musicians approach a product they're working on. Um, you just sort of like have a sense of something and you, and you read as much as you can and you work as much as you can on it. But the thing you're making, you don't know if it's going to be an essay or a game or maybe it's a, a little play or something. You just have to, you have to sort through this idea, this like conceit. Um, so the thing that matters is the feeling. Everything else is secondary. Um, I didn't realize that this was not the normal way of thinking about design. I mean, I don't even really. That sounds uh, like a jerk thing to say, but I, I think that people people design for, for different reasons. And I know a lot of designers, a lot of excellent designers who begin with um, a genre in a market. Sometimes, you know, I want to make a, um, a fantasy bashing game and I, you know, I know this genre. I want to participate in the genre. So that's one thing. Or people who say, you know, I discovered that if you put people on a, it's a worker placement game with gears or something. And you, I mean, I don't know the history of Zulkin. Uh, the Mayan calendar game, which is a pretty yeah. cool game. Um, but I have a, I have a, a hunch that the gears were there at the beginning. Do you know what I mean? They're like they're just, it was such a cool mechanical innovation that you had to build a game around it. And so there was no way the gears were going to change because the gears were the game and maybe you changed the yeah. order of their teeth. And I do not work that way mechanisms for me are like the very 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 last step um mm -hmm. and so what will happen then and uh thankfully i i'm i'm blessed with uh 
a number of playtesters who tolerate this, who know what they're getting into. Um, I will, when I'm iterating, uh, just mercilessly throw things out. Because the moment a mechanism is not delivering the tension that I need it to deliver, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And that might mean that an area majority game turns into a roll and move game. Uh, to use kind of extreme examples. I don't have any <laughs> roll and move games, really. Um, but it, it, it there, there there's just a lot of upheaval at the mechanical level. And it also means that usually, even though I don't think of the games that I work on as especially complicated, but I do think that they're often difficult to learn because they don't rely on any like mechanical hallmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently learned um, Great Western Trail and uh, it, the, the teach for the game was quite interesting because it was like, hey, so there's this part of the game, which is like this. And then we're going to do this, which is a little bit like that game. And we got through the whole game and I thought, boy, if I was new to this hobby, I would be lost. <laughs> but, I, <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, I had a perfect sense of how the game, you know, would work. I did very badly at it, but I like was able to jump right in. So I think there's a weird thing about my games where I do actually get a lot of notes from people who have not played any other games who like, who don't participate in the hobby at all, who love my stuff. And then I also get notes from established gamers who are very frustrated with my games because they don't work the way they seem like they should work. So, uh, uh, you know, the reason why I change things so rapidly and aggressively is because the mechanisms to me like aren't important. Like if they're not, if, if that part of the design is not firing, it doesn't matter how clever it is. I'm going to throw it away. So, you know, you had Pax Premier one and then you uh, transformed it with the second um, root you had uh, released. And then you had factions that came out that were balanced a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, John company was a game that uh, now is coming out with a second edition, which I understand you're making some changes to. Yep. So how, how do you know when you're done with a design? Um, I feel pretty done with root. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, uh, yeah. that's a good question. How do I know when I'm done with the game? Um, Drew and I just submitted the files for, or not, we haven't submitted the files yet, but we're, we did a review of the files for the second edition of uh, the second printing of the second edition of Premiere, And we didn't change anything. We, we corrected four typos, five typos. Maybe we put in a couple clarifications mm-hmm. and it yeah. felt, like there was nothing that there was nothing that wanted changed. Um, and I always think about when I'm, when I'm working on a game, I like to sometimes teach new players who aren't play testers. Um, mm-hmm. Because what will happen is I'll, I'll find myself blushing at certain parts of the teach. And I can mm-hmm. tell that something is not right about the game. If I don't like teaching it, but I love teaching. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. And so if I'm not, if I'm not yeah. enjoying a certain part of the teach, there's something that just isn't quite right. And um, that's yeah. usually my best way of like knowing something's wrong. Um, and that animated a lot of the changes in traffic. Um, and it actually, it animates changes in Oath. I mean, I like was always unhappy with that fourth condition. And I think I finally have maybe have found a way through that. That I, that I and actually when we were playtesting it today, I, I brought in somebody who, who, had never played who who had played oath but not not played uh, anything relating to the, the this change, and I found myself really uh, excited when I was teaching. I'm like, okay, this is a good sign. Um, mm-hmm. But so uh, John Company's been really interesting because I 
originally I was going to, I got very ambitious. I, I like, I, I thought, Ooh, I'm going to change a lot of stuff. I have a lot of things I want to open up about the game. And then when mm-hmm. we actually started developing it, we found that it was a lot more stable than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be easier to change. Like, like Premier was really, I cannot overemphasize the degree. Premier was hard, but it was also like putty. Like as soon as we started changing things, it was like, well, we can hit a sledgehammer there. We can put some new beams in here. Um, mm-hmm. With John Company, it was like, no, everything's pretty much working the way it needs to work. And uh, there are many, many UI changes and a few system things that are going to happen. But like many of the um, foundational mechanical oddities in John Company are going to remain. Um, and I mean, I, I try to think about like, I don't think you get a third edition in this line of work. <laughs> And so I I feel like you get the way I tend to think about it is um, with, with Whirly gig drew and I have gotten very lucky and we are able to produce exactly the game that we want a particular game to be. And we, the only design, the only production constraint because, because we have a really kind audience, um, and because we have the time, uh, the only production constraint we have are those that are demanded by the project itself. So Premier mm-hmm. Premier One was very much dictated by German postage rates, and that's true for John Company as well. And Holland Spiel's Infamous Traffic was very much dictated by um, just the way that they produce their games. Like you get a sheet and a half of you know of funny little laser cut counters. And that's right. a very productive constraint to have. And I think I'm so glad I had it in like the kind of formative years of me thinking about design. But I also uh, trust myself not to go crazy with like John Company. So for instance, when we were working on Premier, we, we knew we wanted to make it nice, Ordis Regni nice. Um, but right. we also, Ordis Regni is like too, is, is a little goofy. <laughs> it's it's really goofy. Yeah, it's uh cuz uh it's it's crazy when you open that box and realize that there actually aren't that many cards. They're all standing up. No, and like the funny um, yeah, everything about like I, we wanted the game up to that standard but designed in a way that was like deeply sensible. Uh and, yeah. and there are a lot of a lot of board games, especially in the Kickstarter world that um they, they just have too many pieces. I mean, it's like a very, I feel like, um, Salieri or something. I can't remember if he's the one who says that nowadays about the too many notes line. Or the, maybe the king says it. I can't remember. It's been ages. I, I'm pretty sure it's the, isn't it the Archduke? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Some some silly character in that. I, it's been probably since, it's been since eighth grade band since I watched that movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do feel sometimes when I look at a Kickstarter, when I open up a box and I'm like, oh, there's so many pieces. Like this is every piece. I feel like folks don't realize the degree to which every component class, every piece, even the beautiful ones, is a barrier to entry. I would much rather open up a fill game and be like, okay, I've got four sets of cubes. I got a few dice. Or I've got a funny deck of cards with a bunch of weird symbols. I'm ready to go. This is just like not that, <laughs> like even Pax Furiana, just not that overwhelming of a product compared to like Gloomhaven. Yeah. Uh, it's overwhelming in other ways. Um, and so I think when, when I think about, um, what Drew and I's side hustle is allowing us to do, 
it's allowing us to produce like what we hope will be authoritative editions that we can be proud of for as long as we can make games. So like mm-hmm. with Pamir, I had felt a little bit in my, in my heart, heart of hearts that I had missed the mark a bit. And I knew people were going to be coming from other work from John company and from root to a degree. And so I wanted to make sure that like they had access to the thing as I wanted it to exist. Um, sure. Now I recognize this is like, I can, I can see the, the eyes of my, my, my advisor. Um, Giving asking giving me a cautionary tale about Walter Scott or something in the Magnum Opus editions because authors yeah. do this all the time they like republish their own stuff and make changes yeah. and they're almost always for the worse or whatever um, and so I um, I don't know I'm just trying to I'm ignoring that tradition and trying to actually make them better um, because usually when authors do that it's a it's a cash in um, but I don't know I mean maybe I'm sympathetic to it like I I think about. So I always had, I had a funny thing. I mean, Drew and I almost didn't start this side company because it, I was worried it'd be like a vanity press or something. And yeah. nobody wants to own a vanity press. That's horrible. Um, Why? Well, I, I guess it depends how many people you can scam. Anyway. Right. Where just, I, 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 I don't want to be, I don't want to be the press. guy who printed the sci-fi novel by himself and is like bringing it to the stores because I just, it's, I don't know. That's, it's like solipsistic or something. Um, but on the other, on the (laughs) other hand, I think it's really important. Like it's not, uh, that hard to own the means of production, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't own a factory or anything, uh, for like in the world of board games. And I kind of wish more things were artist owned and operated. Sure. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm because of John Prine's passing. I'm thinking a lot about him. And like, one of the first things he did was like get out of the studio system, and like start start sure. his own label. So, but I mean, you asked a question about second editions and how like you know when you're done with a thing. And for me, I think the the short answer to that is, I feel like there were certain games that I worked on that I mean, really, the first three games that I made were made under outrageous pressure. Uh, Infamous Traffic mm-hmm. was largely designed like in the hospital while we were waiting for the birth of Auden, our second son. And then he had, there were lots of medical complications and uh, I spent uh, a part of a summer living with family um, because we just wanted to, you know, make sure he he was spending time with a lot of people and it it, it wasn't that serious, but it it was, uh, it was enough to worry us. Um, And he's fine. It's fine. But um, we're good. I, I mean, really, it was a small thing, but it was, it was just enough to kind of jolt us out of our, out of our twenties. <laughs> um, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, so a lot of infamous traffic was like built like with my youngest brother, just like hanging out in the, in the weird little room of, above my parents' garage, like just trying to find something to do. And I was avoiding working on my dissertation and it was like mostly like designed in this weird summer. And then I handed it off and I got back to my schoolwork. Uh, and so I want, but I like, you know, I like him Mr. Traffic, but I also kind of want to give it a little more attention because mm-hmm. I didn't really know, I didn't have a firm sense of my craft. I think when I was, when I did it mm-hmm. and I'm very, I got very lucky. And so I want to make sure that, um, like that subject deserves another, another pass. Sure. And so I just want to make sure that like, 
I really can can do it properly. And so maybe I think about second editions the way academics think about second editions in the sense of like an academic monograph that gets a second edition. And like, what does that mean? Well, some things, a little things might have changed. There'll be a nice intro. They fixed the typos. They cleaned <laughs> it up a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought up authors because I've always felt as though authors writing a second edition is a little bit like a gaseous state in that it will expand to fit whatever their available container is mm-hmm. um, that, that so often it, it, it becomes bloated. Um, whereas the constraints they had been laboring under uh, with the first edition are, are actually the things that had, you know, pressed them into creativity. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that is certainly the problem with Walter Scott's edits. They're always like, did you need that description of like Welsh clothing? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <clears throat> so are you trying to say something um, maybe more clarifying about Empire with uh, any revisions to John Company, Company or an infamous traffic? So with, with John Company, the goal uh, – so with John Company, the goal is chiefly ergonomic, but there are some argumentative adjustments. Um, principally, the uh, – the full argument of John Company is obscured by the fact that the scenario, the game is so difficult to learn and play that um, players don't often explore the scenarios. And I really feel like the John Company can't, like you need the campaign to understand the arguments of that game. Like you just, you mm-hmm. have to see, you have to know what it's like to navigate the deregulation, especially a hurried or weird deregulation that maybe was triggered before people could take advantage of it or something like that. Um, And it it requires like eight games until you even get there. Uh, I I played a game once at, at a con with a bunch of testers who had never played the deregulated game and they had played the game a Mm -hmm. lot and they had just like, Oh yeah, we always just play the early company. And I'm like, Oh, but the 1815 is like the really good scenario or the 1813. I can't remember which date it starts. I think the 1813. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, what we're trying to do is make the design, the UI more accessible and a little like kind of move the rules burden around. So it's a little just easier to like pick up. Uh, so mm-hmm. we do that. And then we're also re- revisiting the way the scenarios are constructed. So they more cleanly lock into one another um, and mm-hmm. are just kind of like, it's just easy if you wanted. So like, instead of it being like, there are three scenarios uh, instead, it would be like there's the beginning scenario, like the intro scenario, scenario two, which teaches you how to run a, a, a private company, and then the full advanced game, which is just scenario one, but with the trigger to turn it into scenario two built into the game. Um, and so I just I want people to I want to make the full sweep of the game a little bit more accessible uh, with traffic. I'm not sure. I have no idea. Um I I think there are traffic has a really funny character to it, which is um, when players play worse, the games are better. <laughs> uh, if players are being very sharky and very smart about and uh, cautious during the first decade of infamous traffic, uh, it's just the rest of the game gets a little bit tighter and it isn't as interesting when you play with people Mm -hmm. who are a little bit looser and are playing a little bit more like a random beer and pretzels game. uh, The second half of the game is way more interesting and a lot more different things can happen in it. 
So, well, yeah, I, I have a suggestion for you. Clay. Yes. Have you considered an infamous traffic after dark edition? Ooh, it just comes with cognac or something. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and a lot of phallic references. <laughs> yes, yes. That, well, that that might do just the trick. I yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on that potentially. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can use that. Yeah, and I may. Uh, but yeah, traffic. I, I'm I'm excited to work on traffic. Although I can't think about it because that's too many. It's too many games away. So to make you think uh, games ahead, let me ask you this question. Um, if you could, um, so obviously a lot of people are fascinated with the work you're doing. Um, Isn't that strange? And, you know, it, it I, not to me. Well, I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, what I used to tell people about Roots Breakaway Success is that, um, you know, every game, every year there's like a breakaway game. Uh, but boy, was that just not something I was shooting for. And like I I, mm-hmm. I I love Elizabeth Hargrave's work and I, I respect Jamie. But with Wingspan, you're like, you knew. And I know he tells people oh, that sure. he didn't know, but that is a such a calibrated hit. And I don't mean that as a put down. It's an amazing design. Yeah. Um but uh man, Root was not. We did not know. Uh so it's just I don't know. Whenever whenever uh, people tell me that folks are interested in my work, I think, Oh, how strange. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find I find it I find it encouraging. No, it um, is. I, I think no, it's I, encouraging I, too. I, I, I'm happy that uh, that folks are playing the sorts of games that I find interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that's where I'm coming at it from. Is uh, so you know I followed your work since you began, and um, the first time I interviewed you, you were still pretty niche, mm-hmm. uh, and I I couldn't be more pleased that everyone that you're the you know you're the prettiest fellow at the ball. Hooray! That's great. <laughs> If you had no considerations for marketability or funding or for what people, what you think people would buy, what three arguments or games or topics would you make next? Um, So I, I, uh, I'm so lucky because I really do feel like Patrick is just going to keep letting me do whatever I want. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I don't like, but I do, I do think about marketability. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to decide. Okay. So right now I mentioned earlier that I'm like working on this murder mystery game. And I mean, working in the most like loose, loosey goosey, nonsensical, like I am thinking about it as a design. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, would I do that game if I wasn't interested in selling it? I think I would. I mean, I think really like um, the degree to which I get to, I'm so lucky. And I feel like because folks are interested in a design aesthetic, I just don't feel like I'm chasing genre. That Maybe mm-hmm. that that's the main thing. And I, I know this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm dancing a little bit around the question, but I'll, I'll get to it directly to just say that like, when when I talk to young designers who are trying to break in, there is so much sensitivity to what is the current mood and can I mm-hmm. tool something I'm working on to the current mood? Heck, it is a it's a concern of like established designers. People I know who oh, have yeah. who have amazing portfolios and who are trying to like, you know, get maybe they've had a bit of a fallow period, they're trying to get back in. Um, they are, they are, they're, you know, they're licking their finger and putting it up to the wind and they're trying to figure out exactly what's going to be the thing. 
And if, and if they yeah. can do it and some designers are brilliant at it, it can ride it with like a plop. Um, that it's just not me. I mean, the way I like, I feel like I work on projects that I am personally invested in. And then there may be a moment, there will be a moment someday when folks stop playing those types of games and maybe the remaining audience will be large enough that I can continue to justify doing it. Or maybe not. I mean, I, one of the things I I remember telling Patrick uh, when I was working on oath is he was like, Hey, this seems really big. Do you want to like do a root thing first or do something else? And I was like, no, because we may never have this infrastructure again. And I don't like, I'm not, I am a pretty cheery person. Normally I don't, I don't get too apocalyptic about things, but like, I don't know, fa- like I'm in an industry that if, where fashion is a, is a governing, I mean, that in the economic sense, fashion is a governing force. So like who the heck knows what sorts of things are going to sell or be important even, you know, so I, I want to use whatever little space I have. I want to use it to make the most ambitious things that I possibly, I want to be very tactical about those kinds of decisions. Sure. Um, which means that like, I don't have the, like I feel very much at the mercy of like the of the tides, not the tides. You can predict the tide. I feel the mercy the mercy of whatever the, the current trend is, and I'm not going to try to forecast it. So I'm just going to work the winds of magic, the winds of magic, the winds of fortune, whatever. I'm not going to try to predict it. I don't. I don't know, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a fool's errand. At least for me. For some people are so good at at, at riding it, but for me. I, I feel like I, I'm learning how to make a certain kind of thing and I'm just going to try to do that. And if it resonates with people and I get to make another one, then hooray. And if not, I'll find something else to do. And, it, you know, we'll, yeah. th- this will have been a very wonderful way to spend a few years of my life and maybe hopefully more because I do like doing it. I could keep doing it for as long as people have me. So with that in mind, the things I'm working on right now, like the game about the re- about reconstruction, is a game that like I absolutely want to make. It's just it. It's a game about the 19th century. It's a. I'm a huge um, a geek for American history, and I've never been able to have a game about it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know, it's it's funny. I, I always tell people that I would go. I went to graduate school as a Victorianist because uh, it was just boring enough that I could be a good scholar of it. <laughs> Um, but really, I love like American postmodernism and 19th century American history. And I, I couldn't work on those areas because I got too excited. Um, and I was a, a garbage scholar of them. Uh, but I really want like I, I really want to do a game about the Gilded Age about and about the American South. And that really thinks about this in, in t- amazing and, in, in, uh, I mean, it's not horrible. It's. I think it's kind of empowering, but it's also a very sad story about nation building in the American context. And it, it intersects with race and class and federalism and all these subjects that I'm really interested in, in ways that are very uncomfortable right. uh, for me. And I'm finding that I'm having to like learn a lot about um, just, you know, different corners of American history that I hadn't, I hadn't touched before. So I want to make that game. I want to make, mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued by the, narratological and mechanical problem of designing a really good murder mystery game. And I think I might have a way of doing it, but I, as a, as a challenge, just to like, keep me on my toes. Um, what, what I asked, and we haven't announced this, it's like, who knows if this is ever going to happen, but I, um, 
I want, after I get done with Oath and maybe do some more root stuff, I want to, um, I want to do a small box leader games title that has a pretty low um, rules profile and a low component profile that does that genre really, really well. Um, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by this, by this problem. And I think, I mean, the way I tend to sum it up is that um, most murder mystery games treat their objects like data points in a, in a deduction, like an array, like you're like, Oh, it's, it's a hammer. No, it's a wrench, whatever. They're the same. They're just weapon a weapon B. And I really want to make uh, a game that works in that genre where a hammer hits and a gun fires and that there is a lot of emergent narrative and is a little more like a roguelike uh, design yeah. in the sense that the items can combine with each other in interesting ways. So I'm working on that. I think it's an intriguing puzzle. Um, outside of that, I don't know. Do I have even, do I even have a third, a third, argument a third project i want to make um not that i can think of i want to do some more roots i want to finish root 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 is done but like i kind of feel like i want to yeah i feel like you're contradicting yourself i know why well, it isn't so root roots different because it's not it doesn't feel like a second edition it feels like there is a modularity to the design and i mm -hmm. i i kind of want to do a couple more because they're really fun <laughs> um, mm -hmm. they're just fun to work, to work on. They're really hard to do. Root factions are tough. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of want to do a couple more just for fun. I'm not like, I, you know, I'm, it'll, it, it's the bread and butter of the company a little bit too. Um, I, I also like, I sort of want to do an economic game, uh, but I just don't. So there's, there's this thing about training games, right? Like folks will ask me like, Oh, when are you going to do an eighth XX? Or when do you want, when are you going to do a yeah. training game? And I, Train games right now are so good. I just, I'm happy. I like, like the train. I want to play. I don't want to design a train game. I just want to play them. Um, and so, and I need like, I need a, I need a dissatisfaction. Um, I wouldn't mind doing a, uh, a space game at some point. I've got a few different ideas for what I might do with a science fiction game. I, I like, sure. I like, I like that, that space, but I mean, all of these are like, it is so difficult for me to separate out this question from the question about um, like, if I, I can't qualify any of these things by saying I would do this if I didn't have to worry about a market constraint, because I really just don't feel a market constraint. Like I'm very lucky right now. The things that I want to do are completely in line with what I should be doing just from an economic sure. standpoint. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Cole, for talking to me. I only have one question left okay, for you. Okay, I'm happy to answer it. And thank you for having me on. This is fun. Uh, and this is, this is the biggest question for me. Um, you may not remember, but a few years ago, I asked you this question, and you, uh, you didn't answer oh, it. Oh, no. I don't remember, but go ahead. And, and I would like you to answer it for me right okay. now, if you would. Um, <clears throat> why did Rome fall, or did it? Okay, I'm, I think I might even have an answer for now. I'm going to collect myself. Okay, take all the time you need. <laughs> I'll edit it yeah, out. No, it's, it's all right. It made me seem like I had this on the top of my head. Why did Rome fall or did it? Hmm. Yeah, I remember dodging this last time. It's coming to me. It's coming to me how I dodged <laughs> it. You don't need to edit this out. People can know. Um, 
Oh, and of course, I, the reason I brought this up is because we had talked about a, a historical. Yeah, no, and I like. I actually game. think that um, the game I was working about on about Rome. I think uh, there's a funny thing that happens sometimes in in the early stages of a design where you where you realize that the, the game that you want, that feeling you want to generate, just can't work, can't be a game. Mm-hmm. And in fact, with Oath, this was happening constantly. Where I was like, I don't even know if this is a game. Oh, it isn't one. Oh, maybe it is. Uh, and w- with the Rome game I was working on, I was like. Man, I, I had all these notes, and then uh, I realized only this year that what I wanted to make was Heaven's Vault. Do you know Heaven's Vault? Is that the uh, is that the translation yes. game? Where Where, you... and you're kind of you know, okay. you're writing history. It's a, it's but sort of nonlinear. So I haven't played it, but I but I have seen it. I really like Inkle's Vault. Oh yeah, Inkle's great, and and I think Heaven, Heaven's Vault. I, I've just started a little bit, and I'm like, oh, Heaven's Vault. That's what I wanted. And it's like just fundamentally like not a board game. Um, I'm not answering mm-hmm. your question. I'm going to answer it directly. So um, <laughs> why did Rome fall or did it? It's so weird. I'm, I think maybe I would have been in a better place to answer this like a month ago. Because then I started listening to the History of Byzantium podcast. And I'm just like, it uh-huh. didn't fall. Yeah, it didn't. I don't think it fell at all. I think that um, what Rome was by the time it topples over, you know, in the fourth century or whatever, fifth century, 450, is that right? Yes, ish. I'm not going to help. No, I know, but this is like your area. You know, these days. I know. This is my field. Well, we'll see. But but I I just, okay. So I think like what. I would have to answer with another question, like what are we counting as Rome, on? right? I mean, that that, that was like yeah. oh, it depends on what we mean by Rome, because there is um, an administrative, institutional, cultural framework that gets integrated into I don't know parts of Gaul and like even quasi adopted by the various you know kings that are going to come after it, and then most of it though just kind of keeps humming along in the east like by the time rome topples in the west to me it's like the brain transplant had already happened like 100 mm-hmm. years ago i mean like the 100 years b- b- before that right i mean you have the, the the epicenter all of the like you know all the granaries all of the the profitable parts of rome they aren't in the west like they're in the east and they just keep humming through the whole thing I mean, not through the whole thing, but mm-hmm. through, the, through the Middle Ages, right? Until, until the Turks topple them down. Um, and so I feel like, um, why did Rome fall? And I think it, so it depends on what you mean by Rome. I am sympathetic to the idea that Rome was more than just like the administrative state associated with the empire. I think Rome falls in the Middle Ages because... The Byzantine, uh, which I don't even want to use that term because they wouldn't have used it, because the Eastern Church increasingly isolated itself and lost its relevance to the West. And it became possible for a bunch of crusaders to go ransack their ancestral home, their, their, their culturally ancestral home, without realizing what they were even doing, because it had, it had so aggressively cloistered itself off. And so, like, mm-hmm. the thing that is making the Roman engine work and made it survive was the fact that it was able to stay relevant for so long. And when that stopped happening for what 
you know, we call the Byzantine Empire, that was it. That's my answer. I don't know if it's a good one. I think it is. I think that's what I believe. So I don't know. I'll give you an A. (laughs) I'll take an A. An A for expertly argued. Wait, that's odd. Expert doesn't start with A. Do you know the game, uh, Dan, uh, Barbarian Kingdom and Empire? Barbarian? Let me. Okay, it it's up. from like Kingdom eighty-two or something. It's the no, it's the so. kind of thing that you should just know exists. And when whenever we whenever I have cause to visit or um, or if we see each other at a con, we can bring it and play it together. But it is a okay. rolling war game in the sense that players can drop off an ad whenever you want, and players start out as barbarian tribes and then they, they come in and try to conquer the empire they form these little kingdoms and then as they grow they become little empires and then they become so top heavy that it's much more interesting to go play a barbarian and so you just freeze that and you go play a different barbarian um it, it, it's great it's it's a it's a total nonsense weird game published by some very small company in like illinois in the early 80s or late 70s mm-hmm. um I was thinking about it a lot when I was working on it, so it's it's a little on my mind. But yeah, I think that's where I'm at on the on yeah. Rome. Um, what would you have answered a month ago? I'm just curious. I think well, I I gave you the answer. I think that I, I would have given a month ago. Um, so I tried to be a good sport about it um, because I, I think that is the most certain I've been about this question. Where I'm feeling mm-hmm. now, though, is that the Roman administrative state actually did matter. And it did end. And that the various mm-hmm. pieces of the empire in the West kind of spiraled off into nothingness. And that I'm being a little like silly fixating so much attention on the, the cultural component. Like mm-hmm. four people living in southern France in like the year 400, Rome was a part of their life. Yeah. Um, and so like to say like, well, the empire didn't really end. It's like, yeah, but tell that to the Southern Gauls who like, you know, that, that part of their, you know, the, the, the Roman administrative class that was stationed in Gaul, right? Like, no, it did change. And it, you know, they had to, there was a big realignment that happened. Um, right. And so you don't want to like minimize it. Like, I think it be, I used to like this argument that like, well, you know, the Senate didn't stop meeting until the middle ages. So, like, if the Senate just keeps going on, doesn't that mean Rome just keeps going on? And it's like, it was yeah. like a social, it's like a gentleman's club. It's not the same thing. Um, yeah. And so I don't, I, I, I never want to be too, um, I don't know, what what's the right, uh, like, I, I'm not trying to be a sophist or something about it. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a common argument where um, they, you know, they point out that the Merovingian dynasty was using the same legal documents. Mm-hmm as Rome, but it it's pretty apparent that they actually didn't know what those documents were saying um, <laughs> because they, they actually used them as form documents the same way you would at the DMV. It's just that they were in Latin and they were copied down by hand. And you'll notice that the later documents have more errors in them. And it's because they were copying from copies of copies of copies. Mm-hmm. And so anytime someone would make a spelling error, it would just persist. Oh, that's very interesting. So they actually... So they actually didn't know what their own legal documents were actually saying. They were just passing them on and honoring a tradition. Um, but how much weight does a tradition have if you don't 
it, no, yeah, it's, it's like it's this it. question about what do you mean by Rome, and this is why. Like, so another reason why the Byzantine answer feels thin to me is that I think that the the Roman. So there's this funny erasure of Greece that happens in like the uh, what are they the act? Do we do we still call it the Axial Age? Is that fair? I don't know. Um, these like funny different periodizations, but like, you know, you have like the golden age of Athens or whatever, and then yeah. there's a plague and some bad stuff happens and, you know, let's, let's pay attention to the Romans. They're more interesting, but yeah, like <laughs> the Hellenistic world, there is a pretty clear line between that. I mean, people in the Byzantine empire spoke Greek. So like, you don't want to give. You don't want to give Rome credit for Greeks' homework. You know what yeah. I mean? Just in terms of like, if, if you're trying to think about a society over many hundreds of years, um, the argument that like, uh, but it's also hard because the, the, you know they, they were calling themselves Romans, but it's just like it was Greek culture. I mean, what it really yeah. is like the Middle Ages of greek culture it's just it's not based in athens it's like moved eastward like everything else i don't know it's it turns out it's a complicated question but there are lots of good answers well i don't like that one. <laughs> yeah i give that, that's, that's a b plus i don't i don't i don't know it's over no no i, I like i liked the two answers you gave i don't like the it's complicated oh i would not accept that on a paper <laughs> yeah no i wouldn't either then. Give, me, give me an argument. Well, thank you again, Cole, for joining me. This today. is super um, fun. You're the only board game podcast that I could talk about. Um, you know, the later Roman Empire with. I think, except I don't know. Uh, Harold, Harold will probably uh, call me up right after he hears this and say that we need, we need a <laughs> chat, which would be great because I miss Harold. All right. Well, we are signing off. As always, I am Dan Thoreau, and thank you for joining me, Cole. Thank Rayleigh. you very much for having me. Okay.